Hello, and welcome to Energy Levelized. I'm Morgan. And I'm Bill, and we're your hosts. Energy Levelized is a glimpse behind the scenes, a chance to hear from the passionate personalities behind the mountains of research the Enverus Intelligence team puts out on the energy space. For those that aren't familiar with Enverus, we're an energy SaaS firm that is influencing the world's most important energy decisions by connecting an industry through intelligence, data analytics, and smart network technologies. We invite you to join us as we have fun, unscripted, and honest conversations tackling the toughest questions in energy. Hello, and thanks for joining us for another conversation on Energy Levelized. Unfortunately, Bill couldn't join us today, but in his place, we have a guest host, Dave Howard, from our Inveris leadership team. Now, when we launched this podcast, uh, we did have the intention of showcasing the personalities on the research team. And to those that know Dave, uh, this, he certainly comes to mind from that aspect. So his role at Inveris has changed a bit over the years. So now he's more on the product development side. Um, but his history as co-head of intelligence has certainly led to some very thoughtful and uh, conversation-provoking experiences, I'll say. So welcome, Dave. Thanks for stepping into the host seat with me today. Thank you very much for that introduction, Morgan. So today, I would like to uh, acknowledge that in the spirit of respect, reciprocity, and truth, uh, we broadcast on the traditional territories of the Treaty 7 First Nations, Blackfoot Confederacy, Sutina, and the Stony Nakoda peoples, and the Métis Nation, Region Number 3. Further, we acknowledge all nations, Indigenous and non, who live and work and play and help us steward this land, honour and celebrate this territory and the value of its people. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Super glad that we have in the studio Patrick Elliott. I would introduce Patrick as a family man, avid skier, tech investor, startup mentor, and serial entrepreneur, being involved in uh, four um, companies, either in the startup stage as a founder, early employee, and uh, uh, executed many exits therein, and, and excited to talk about uh, the fourth incarnation of that. Patrick is also heavily involved in our startup community in Calgary through the Creative Destruction Labs. So thank you for being here, Patrick. I'm excited to have you. Well, thank you, David, and thank you, Morgan, and, and I appreciate the opportunity to come to speak with all of you today. How was my introduction? Did it hit that? <laughs> <laughs> it was great. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was very flattering, and, and uh, I appreciate the kind words. The first question I kind of want to talk about is, you know, your own transition. So today we're here talking about your latest incarnation and but it was a long journey to kind of transition for from where, what you were at pan canadian um to what you are today and certainly in the last six months there's been a big transformation so why don't you tell us what uh, got you here well as, as you mentioned uh you know what, what i was i think is still who i am um but i i started my uh, career back in 1994 so i've been in the energy industry for roughly 27 years uh, largely focused on upstream exploration development of, of assets in the energy space. And um, through that career, I've, I've had a wonderful career, uh, been able to explore in multiple different basins and been participated in or have participated in building a number of companies that I'm very proud of. And 
I think, you know, ultimately what led us to the position that I'm in right now with uh, the new startup, uh, Carbon Alpha, which we can talk about in a moment. Um, you know, I, I think that as, as we uh, in the energy industry have seen over the last number of years that the energy industry is changing. It's shrinking necessarily, I believe. And I think it uh, also opens opportunity uh, for people to start to apply the skills that we have in the energy transition. And that's what we're doing right now. That's that's exciting. I think that's an exciting message for a lot of a lot of individuals. And uh, certainly, one of the questions I have is like, what na- what makes now special? CCUS or carbon sequestration? These ideas have been on the drawing board. Uh, I mean, for decades. And, and in fact, the technology, at least from a natural gas processing perspective, has been around, um, you know, forever. Why now? Why not ten years ago? What makes today special? Well, I think from an industry perspective, um, there's a number of forces that are driving the energy transition, and I think we've seen them pick up steam in the last number of years. Specifically to carbon sequestration, I think there was a, a bunch of activity in uh, in around 2010. Uh, ultimately, that led the, to uh, Shell Quest in, in our neck of the woods. Um, but it's only been in the last number of years where we start to see governments really step into uh, the energy transition and put in places... Uh, things like carbon tax, which are going to be very important for the industry to move forward to recognize the uh, the uh, cost of uh, emissions, and uh, by recognizing that cost cost, it also develops the opportunity to uh, create new industrial applications for carbon sequestration on existing assets. So uh, between uh, the government uh, wanting to step in and legislate change and um, uh, the financial markets also starting to demand change from uh, uh, their uh, uh, companies that they invested in. And uh, corporations really stepping up to the plate and saying that they want to uh, decarbonize. Uh, those forces have really picked up steam in the last number of years and uh, substantially so on the um, uh, financial side. I think there's over $40 trillion that have uh, align themselves with uh, decarbonization strategies. So it's it's significant and all corporations are really going to have to um, participate in this energy transition. So it's significant, it's real this time, it's taking shape and uh, it's part of the change that's ongoing right now. Yeah, and just pulling on that, that ongoing change, um, especially bringing it back to Alberta, I mean, that's where Carbon Alpha is based. Um, could you give us a sense of what the current CCUS situation is in Alberta, especially with a lot of these forces coming to play now? Well, that's a great question. And I, there's a lot going on in Alberta right now. It's a very exciting time for carbon sequestration. Um, a significant milestone was passed on September 9th when the government of Alberta put forward a request for expressions of interest and ultimately a request for project proposals for companies to come forward to to look to get access to carbon sequestration leases in the subsurface. And this really is the start of the carbon sequestration industry in Alberta, if not Canada. So it's a significant time that we're in right now. The government um, is expecting uh, the uh, expressions of interest to be submitted by October 12th, so that's uh, next Tuesday. And then uh, in early December, 
they're also indicated that they are expecting uh, proponents to submit requests for proposals. And those will be very fulsome proposals for sequestration, which uh, the government, which uh, proponents will have to put forth a whole series of details as to exactly how they want to uh, sequester the hydrocarbon into the particular zone that they're looking at, where, and a lot of detail, very much aligned with, I think, the Shell Quest application. And uh, they expect to be granting those uh, sequestration leases by the end of March in 2022. So that's going to start a, a significant amount of activity. I expect it to be a very competitive process. Uh, we at Carbon Alpha have had the opportunity to talk to a lot of different uh, players in the space that are considering carbon sequestration as part of their decarbonization strategies. And so we've we've been able to get a, uh, I would say, a high-level assessment of the interest that we'd expect. And I think it's significant. I think that this is, there's a there's a significant amount of capital that is preparing to participate in carbon sequestration. So it's a very exciting time. That's great, Patrick. One of the things that comes up, I think, often in Alberta is, is this possible to be an industrial driver, right? You mentioned the, um, the, expressions of interest in the request for proposals, but we also remember from 10 years ago, all this framework put into place and actually nothing happened. So, you know, Alberta has been in a tough spot, uh, especially since our main employment driver and our main kind of growth industry, which I would say is, was the oil sands industry, um, really is not that competitive in today's world from a, from a cost and certainly from not a new project perspective. So as we think about it, this has this looks and feels and has a flavor of a real industrial type of opportunity. And I just wanted to know is, are you seeing that same, do you see the same thing and, and the people you're talking to, what kind of industries? And, and yesterday there was an announcement from Dow Chemical about net zero ethylene being a possibility here. Um, what are your thoughts with that? Well, no, it's a great question, David. I, 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 I do think that we are in the precipice of, a, of starting a, a brand new industry and an industry that's going to um, uh, create a lot of opportunity for Alberta. When we think about Alberta in its position within Canada, we emit roughly 270 million tons per year and just about 200 million tons from industrial emissions. So the proportion of industrial emissions to just total emissions in Alberta is high, meaning we've got a lot of uh, industries operating here that create emissions. And in addition to that, we have, we generate the greatest amount of emissions. And so therefore, uh, the amount of, uh, or the scale of the opportunity is massive. And so when we think about uh, uh, what what could come of that, so when we think about the, the amount of opportunity that exists for uh, I, people in Alberta, Alberta has a lot of uh, uh, benefits and strengths, I think, when we think about Alberta relative to the rest of Canada or even parts of the United States. We've got the highest amount of emissions, which I've touched on. We've got abundant reservoirs that are well-defined by historical drilling in the province. And so really when we think about Alberta and all the resources that we have and the legacy of the oil and gas industry, if we just reframe this basin in a manner that we think about it from a storage perspective, it's a tremendous storage perspective that many other provinces in the country just don't have, or provinces or states even in the United States. And we know how to weld things together. We know how to weld things together. We've got incredible equipment fabrication that we can manufacture locally. We're not dependent on foreign sources to deliver that fabrication, which I think is great from a, 
uh, supply chain perspective. Um, and we have a, a world-class uh, regulatory system that is well-prepared uh, and knows how to handle these types of industrial activities. And we've got a carbon sequestration uh, legislation that's been in place since 2011. So Alberta is really well-positioned to participate in this um, uh, new industry, which I think is, uh, as I mentioned before, I think it's going to be very significant. And the last thing I'm going to add is, is that, you know, uh, the Alberta government sponsored Shell Quest project, which is significant because they've had to release all of their information on an annual basis. And so for people uh, like ourselves who are looking to uh, develop industrial assets, Shell has inc created a, an incredible playbook about how to do this and set some really good uh, examples and standards, I think, for the industry. I think as we go further in the industry that there will be refinements and efficiencies that will come out of that. But um, there's no question anybody who's going to be involved in this industry today is going to be um, benefiting from that investment that the Alberta government made with ShellQuest. So you had an opportunity to listen to our last uh, podcast where we kind of talked about the technical aspects, Graham, and and, and some of the regulatory aspects, Heather. And a couple of things that struck me was that, um, you know, in their words, not all emissions are created equal. That is, uh, not every emitted CO2 molecule comes in the same format. And that changes, you know, how maybe how you capture and the cost of it, certainly. The next thing was that not all rocks are created equal. That is, um, there is a lot of subsurface uncertainty. Um, you could almost say as much subsurface uncertainty with injection as we had for the last, you know, 100 plus years uh, of extraction of hydrocarbons. And the next thing is there's uh, policy uncertainty. So just would like to hear your thoughts on, on you know, whether or not you agree with those uncertainties um, and, and, and uh, an overall thought of, hey, look, are we at the hype phase of this? Um, is this are, are we as a, as a society looking at this in a sober way, um, or are we overemphasizing the opportunity, or 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 are we too negative on it? What, what's your what are your takes there? Because there's there's lots of voices out there. Yeah, there really is, there's, and there's lots in there that we need to unpack. Um, you know, starting on, on on the on the capture side, uh, uh, or, or actually just going backwards, starting to the first podcast, I thought that was an excellent podcast. I thought the uh, the, the group there did a great job uh, talking about some very um, important aspects of of carbon sequestration. Really enjoyed it, and I think it's great excellent to plug. <laughs> for those of you who haven't listened to it, listen to that episode. <laughs> Um, but I think, you know, starting with, uh, you know, the capture side, yeah, there's, there's obviously there's differences in the cost of capture and cost of capture is really related to, uh, the concentration of, of CO2 at the flu stack, the pressure of the CO2 and the total volume of CO2. So those are the main drivers and each different industrial processes has a different combination of that. And so, uh, th there is a distribution uh, of uh, the cost for the various processes that exist out there. And uh, when we think about, you know, how should we go about uh, implementing carbon sequestration, 
I think at this stage, it makes a lot of sense to work on uh, those uh, emissions sources that uh, are the easiest to capture. And, and why? Well, the more activity that we can generate, the quicker we will learn and the faster that we'll refine the technology as opposed to going after some of the harder ones. So from a, from a capture perspective, I, I think about it as a portfolio. Why wouldn't we focus on where we think we could be most successful first? At the same time, developing some of the harder to capture sources like direct air capture. I think that that could be very important in the future. Um, but we can't go pouring all our money into that directly. Uh, so I think from a portfolio perspective, from a government and a public investment perspective, I think that there's a, a range of outcomes. But we should be really focusing on the ones that I think are going to accelerate the process as quickly as possible. So who are the who are the partners? And sticking with the... Um emitters before we move on to the rocks and the policy there who are the partners um that you're looking to um partner with at carbon alpha uh and i ask because a lot of people conflate ccus with just as an oil and gas story um and you've told me it's not because emissions come from it everywhere so what are some of those lower cost sources or or more economic kind of capture opportunities that out there and what sort of industries do they represent who who are carbon alpha's customers that you want to serve yeah that's a great question so you know at carbon alpha we really started our business um focusing on those uh customers that don't have insights to the subsurface so you know we come from the oil and gas upstream and we know that the oil and gas upstream Groups, they have all the talent and technology they need to really be successful at this and 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 attend uh, to their own emissions. And and I think they will. And I think that the oil sands is a great example of that. I'm I'm really happy to see that go forward and and them to make those announcements. I think that's a great thing for the uh, petroleum industry to 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 get behind. Um, when we started, we really focused on uh, groups that don't have those subsurface insights, and so we're that. Um, group that can help uh, be that solution in the subsurface. So we look to um, develop, own, operate uh, sequestration facilities for groups that uh, need that service. Um, so the groups that we've been talking to are really are in, uh, groups from agricultural uh, aspects, um, um, energy, uh, power companies, uh, biofuels, biomass groups. So there's a wide range uh, of different uh, emitters that exist out out there in Alberta, and you know we've been we've been focusing on um, uh, you know those groups that uh, um, have uh, a big emissions footprint and then need that assistance to 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 bring it uh, uh, into the ground. So Carbon Alpha makes its money by providing de-risking the subsurface uncertainty. And so that's the value, you know, that's the the special sauce you you bring, I would assume. I'm speculating. Yeah, the um, you know, now turning to the subsurface, when we think about the subsurface, I mean as as we all know from uh, upstream history, there's good rocks and there's bad rocks. There's rocks that you want to be associated with and ones that you don't. And what we try to do is identify uh, those resources in the subsurface that have the highest amount of permeability. So that speaks to injectivity. Uh, they have the largest amount of cap uh, capacity. And then most importantly, they've got uh, containment. You know, we need to know that we put the CO2 in the ground, it's going to stay there. And we need to be able to measure, monitor, and, uh, and validate that the, that, uh, that, uh, the uh, carbon is staying in the ground. 
Um, but th that is our, our specialty. Our specialty is really uh, evaluating the subsurface assets, uh, developing them, operating them, and uh, um, owning those assets. So we want to participate in, in those assets. And I think importantly, too, uh, part of our business plan is to take liability for those long-term assets. Uh, or the long-term liability of, of the uh, carbon that goes into the ground in conjunction with the partnerships that we would form. And typically uh, of the emitters that we've spoken to, they, they want to participate in that project. And I think that makes a lot of sense. We're trying to get alignment through the entire value chain of CCS. Awesome. You mentioned measurement, monitoring, and, and verification. I do have a couple questions on that, but um, we'll come back to that. I just like want to get a hold on you know, what differentiates Alberta from the carbon sequestration industry itself. Is it is it that subsurface? Is it the combination of the subsurface um, being ideal for sequestration in proximity to these emitters? I guess what what really gives Alberta the leg up in terms of this industry? And I'd add the people too, right? Because one of the mm -hmm. things that one of the things that Alberta brings to the or, or or really a region like Alberta, I mean we could replicate it, we could say Texas, it's the same, is a, you know, an industrial engineering complex. You know, that's different than, say, anywhere that may be less developed. So, yeah, well, okay, the, yeah, there's there's a lot of great um, aspects to this. And it, it gets back to, you know, our legacy of, of all the information that we've collected. You know, we've got a high concentration of engineering and geoscience talent in Alberta. But just getting back to the, you know, the rock systems, I mean, we've got reservoirs where we extract hydrocarbon that exists all throughout the province. And we've got the same ability to store hydrocarbons all throughout the province. So we have a distributed opportunity for sequestration. When we think about the examples in the UK, as an, uh, to, to point to one that's uh, in the media quite a bit, the issue they have there is they don't have as many onshore opportunities to sequester. So their uh, design of, of their CCS industry uh, by uh, uh, and by design, they've they've collected all the emissions from onshore sources, and they will take them offshore through via a whole series of pipelines, and then. Uh, inject them into offshore assets uh, or offshore underground uh, uh, sequestration spots. So whereas in Alberta, we, we've got access to uh, a wide distribution of sequestration opportunities that are distributed throughout the entire province that can really match where those emissions occur. So in other words, the opportunity here is to reduce the amount of infrastructure system relative to places where they just don't have that capacity. The other key thing with Alberta is that uh, the Alberta government has laid claim to all open pore space within the subsurface. And so as a result, we can get rather large tracts of land that are saline water wet uh, reservoirs. And you can put the, together large contiguous uh, parcels of land, which is going to be necessary for the volume of sequestration that we're going to to need. Put put that into scale. And the reason why I ask you to put it into scale, because I think people forget the scale when you say large tracts of land, you know, to, to a, a large ranch, a rather large one would be like, you know, several sections, you know, an acreage is a large piece of property for um, an individual to own. Um, what does it mean to be able to get large packages of land in Alberta? Well, that's a great question. Uh, you know, when we look at the uh, uh, 
shell quest lease, it's 39 townships. And each township is 36 sections. So they're massive. So, and the advantage going back to the mineral tenure is that, you know, if you could imagine trying to put together 39 townships of continuous acreage in, in Texas versus Alberta, you can do that in Alberta for water wet saline reservoirs. And that makes it uh, a, a huge advantage uh, in our uh, jurisdiction relative to other jurisdictions, just from a tenure perspective. So um, to think about it in terms of scale, there are some countries that will fit inside of some of these land packages you know, on, in the earth today, right? Like small European sized countries. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're right. Yeah, no, they're, they're significant. They're really big. And, um, but when you, when you start to unpack, like why is, why is Shell's lease so large? Um, there, there's, we need to have an understanding of why that, why that is. When you look at the actual plume of CO2 that, that the Shell Quest lease will create, it's on the scale of kilometers away from the well bores. So in other words, anywhere between three to six kilometers away from the well bore in the injected formation, uh, you will have a plume of CO2 that would exist. But why? Do they have so much land, 39 townships around that? Well, the reason is, is because you start to create a pressure wave away from that sequestration uh, epicenter. And that pressure wave is just pressure that's emulating through the water in the subsurface, and it continues out at a distance for, um, well, in this case, several townships, multiple townships. So it's, it's a significant pressure wave that, that, uh, that is created beyond that. And the significance 20, of that, like 20 X, 20, yeah, about 23 times. So just in, in, to think about why this matters is if imagine you are a landowner in a, in a, in, in Texas and you own the mineral rights and, um, you're 23 miles away from a CO2 injection. Well, you may not see the CO2 but your mineral tenure may be affected by the pressure pulse that's coming there, right? You, 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 your minerals that you own, because you're in Texas and you're in Oklahoma, are now being pressurized 23 miles away. And that's going to have potential implications for you and then all the people that are in between you and the injection well. And there could be several um, many, if not hundreds of mineral right owners in between in that zone versus one mineral owner in the crown for Canada. Yeah, that, that could be true. It all really depends on what formation you're injecting to. So using, coming back to Alberta and just using the Alberta example, because I can't speak to, uh, uh Texas, um, but, uh, Shell is, uh, injected into the basal Cambrium sands, which is, I think right now the, the, the go-to choice for many, uh, proponents of, of CCS in at least the eastern half of Alberta. Um, that formation is water wet. It's distributed throughout the entire province um, in, in, in those regions that I talked about before. And it, uh, uh, so it, it will not affect hydrocarbon production because it's not connected to any hydrocarbon. It's a singular body that's water wet. And of course, it's not connected perfectly all throughout the subsurface, as we know. There's a lot of discontinuities. But in, in the case of uh, a true saline aquifer, this is an aquifer that's just not plumbed into hydrocarbon. And so what the implication of this pressure wave is that what we're looking for is wells that would have penetrated that zone. 
and those wells that penetrate the precambrian um, or the the cambrium, uh, the basal cambrian sand, sorry, those wells could be potential leak points. And so by creating um, uh, a map of where that higher pressure regime may exist, we identify wells that could be a potential leak point for the CO2 uh, up well bores that may not have proper uh, cementation. So that it's interesting because you know the observation that I have is in in the the great CCUS discussions that are happening happening today and and uh, are going to continue to happen in in places like Texas. Um, the debate is really centered around almost like EUR and using old you know depressurized oil opportunities. Whereas in Alberta, the 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 direction is more along the lines of deep saline. And so you wonder, I mean, I'm speculating, but mineral tenure probably has something to do with that. It's probably a lot easier uh, in Texas to to square up the mineral tenure to get an EUR scheme and store carbon that way, similar to maybe what we've seen from the Denburys and, and the Oxys of the world. Uh, whereas here, the government is really taking a different uh, approach and and it seems to be pushing companies like Carbon Alpha into that deep saline option. So, and that ties into the the, the monitoring. So, so why why are we going in that direction here? How does that tie to the the the? And I'm going to get the acronym wrong, but the MMV or the Measurement Monitoring and Verification. And what are we trying to do by going deep saline versus old oil field infrastructure? That's a good question, Dave. There, there's there's a lot of interest in the, uh, the deep saline reservoirs uh, with the government. I think mostly because number one, the the, the tenure situation is simple. Um, from their perspective, they own it, uh, and it's it's a resource that they uh, can control how they allocate uh, um, the resource out to proponents. And I think the other aspect when we think about depleted gas reservoirs, and we believe at Carbon Alpha that those are uh, real resources that are necessary. We, we need all the carbon sequestration space we can get in the basin. And in many ways, they're very attractive because they come fully delineated. We've drilled a number of wells in them. We understand the volume that came in, that came out. We typically have a lot of information in the form of well logs, cuttings, core, all the type of data that we would like. And so we can we can quickly do a mass balance of how much hydrocarbons come out and and then figure out how much uh, carbon sequestrate or carbon that we can put into the reservoir. I think the issue with the government um, not uh, embracing depleted gas reservoirs in Alberta, which by the way they are in British Columbia, which they've just come out in the last couple of months uh, suggesting that they will accept depleted gas reservoirs great, for that. Great. Let's, let's have some interprovincial competition here. Let's, let's, <laughs> like, cause that hasn't happened before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and, and in this case, I think it's actually good. I think it's going to uh, shine a light on this, this issue, but I think part of, part of the, um, the, the hesitancy has to do with the fact that because there are so many well bores that penetrate these depleted assets, in some cases, there's there's literally 50 or 100 well bores that could be pe penetrating these assets. Each of those well bores represent a leak point. And getting back to your question about liability, well, long term after closure, 
the government will accept liability and the liability will transfer over to the government. And so uh, when they think about assets that have a minimum amount of penetrations into them, that's a small amount of liability. When there's a lot of penetrations, I think that just increases the liability and risk to the government. And it's, it, it's interesting because if you think about it, I think that the long-term transfer of liability to the government is actually a central value proposition to uh, a company like Carbon Alpha or an emitter in 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 Alberta setting up even more industry to to be net zero. So the Dow chemical example. And the reason why I think that's a, a, a bonus is that it essentially um, means that the government of Alberta is underwriting the long-term storage of this carbon, which ultimately in our confederation means that the government of Canada is as well. Uh, through our, you know, complex constitutional structures and all that. But that guarantee is a lot stronger than really risking a leak or, you know, emitting a bunch of carbon from bad storage uh, from a private operator, right? Like it's it's basically locking it underground, uh, a carbon bank, so to speak, uh, forever, um, underwritten by the by by a government, so it's an interesting kind of observation. It's do you, do you know of any other jurisdictions that have adopted that that approach? Like, is the UK adopting that approach? I, I'm I'm not you know I'm not really familiar with the UK and and the regulations. Just at arm's length. Um, I do know in the United States, I believe that that. That that does exist in in how the government will accept the long term liability. I think it's important for operators to have that because, you know, ultimately while the while the um, injection process is happening and before the injection process, there's a lot of work that has to be done to demonstrate that that carbon is going to stay in the ground. And this gets back to to Morgan's question about uh, monitoring, measurement, and, and verification. Uh, it's a it's a really important aspect, and I think it's one that's uh, not really well recognized. So in the extraction space, you know, we're happy to go out and uh, drill wells and extract hydrocarbon, and that is a very common practice. And, and as an industry, we're very comfortable with it, and we operate in a very uh, safe manner, and it's been well established. Carbon sequestration, of course, is different. We're putting um, we're putting fluids and gases into the reservoir. And so the government has uh, designed and, and industry has designed uh, this MMV, Monitoring, Measurement and Verification process. And the process really uh, is designed to ensure that the, that the carbon is going into the ground and it's staying in the ground. And so what that means is you have to do a pre-project uh, assessment to understand what the preconditions exist in the in the subsurface and in the ground and then as we go through time and start to inject you you're constantly reporting on uh, changes to the uh, anticipated model and really what you what you're really doing is you're creating a reservoir simulation and you have expectation about how the co2 is behaving in the reservoir and you're looking for any kind of deviation from that plan so what that would entail is that you would likely shoot a 3d in the case of shellquest and you would be able to, to look at the reservoir and understand the uh, 
and understand how it would change going from a, a water-filled reservoir to a, a gas-filled uh, reservoir over time. And then you would also drill some wells to monitor um, the reservoir. You would drill them probably above the reservoir, and you'd be able to measure changes in pressure. You might even be able to change uh, measure chemistry changes and so forth. And so you're, you're looking for physical measurements um, to, to give you early detection of any kind of leak that might occur from that reservoir so that you can intervene. And so the interesting thing there, you mentioned it, uh, 3D, and for, for those that aren't, aren't familiar, that's 3D seismic, and, and it's quite literally setting off grids of explosions and measuring the, um, the sound waves as they come back, bounce off the rocks and come back. It's a, it's a highly uh, complicated and very expensive endeavor. It's also an industry that's been decimated by uh, two things, unconventional resources and, and low prices. So interesting opportunity for seismic there. Um, but the same thing is innovation. Uh, is there any, like, is there room to innovate? Like, would would there ever be a time or could there be a time where that was a lot cheaper or we found a way to measure that from a satellite or from the air? You know, similar to what we're doing today, we're measuring methane emission from satellites and we're getting more and more accurate. Is, do you think there's any opportunity there or am I, or am I, am I just crazy? No, I think there's great opportunity. I mean, when you look at uh, the entire cost of sequestration, um, around 50%, 56% of it, it has to do with MMV uh, programs. And about 80% of that is seismic, 3D seismic. So you make assumptions that you're shooting a seismic at the start, maybe in the middle of your injection scheme and at the very end at closure so that you can measure exactly where you think the CO2 had gotten to. And each of those um, seismic shoots could be massive. And uh, so, yeah, I think that number one, from a from a industry perspective, uh, you know, seismic is going to be very important going forward. Uh, but at the same time, because those costs are so high, uh, you know, industry will be looking for innovation to try to, to um, you know, try to bring those in line. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very... It's important to have 3D seismic, uh, especially at the front end, um, but it, the, the costs are prohibitive. And I think, you know, as, as the industry evolves, technology evolves, we've seen it all the time. We've seen it in the upstream uh, perspective, and we've, we've seen it in, in, in uh, you know, energy transition um, technologies. They've evolved and they've got you know, less and less expensive. And, I've, and as costs come down, we're just going to be able to bring and afford more industrial assets to to participate in CCS. So I think it's really important. Um, but the MMV, one final one one final point about MMV. MMV is really the key that unlocks carbon credits. The carbon markets really need to know that the carbon has been correctly accounted for and correctly stored and permanently stored. So the MMV uh, gives way to the carbon credit, and the carbon credit is really a financial instrument. Not only just the carbon credit as well, though, right? The MMV is basically the underwriting document that would allow green finance to come in, right? Like if you're going to attract green finance, which there's more dollars than there are homes right now for that type of investment in infrastructure, that the MMV and actually having that, you know, approved, I guess, by government is what kind of unlocks that opportunity to have a lower cost of capital. Would that be fair? Not only having the credits, but the finance and maybe the investors too. 
There's no question. I think the um, you know MMV plays a very significant role to unlock all that capital. And I think you know in the future, uh, as carbon markets start to mature, we're going to start to see differentiation between the various carbon credits that exist. And you know, mechanical separation and permanent sequestration of carbon uh, from uh, carbon capture and sequestration are are um, you know really a, a significant part of the removal of of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And so the um, being able to to ensure that those that 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 entire process is legitimate and justifies those carbon credits is going to be very important. And the more data that you can collect to uh, indicate that your processes are real and robust, uh, I think just adds value to the carbon credits that might exist out there. Because when you speak to folks in the carbon trading, carbon credit uh, trading markets, they're always trying to differentiate between carbon credits. And so, um, and I know data is near and dear to your heart. And I think that data uh, and, and even concepts like a blockchain uh, are going to be very important to the carbon credit market. I mean, I know, I know we're, we're I know we're very aligned with what uh, energy transition means from a from a data and analytics and SaaS capability platform, right? Like the the whole thing is going to be run off of a very intricate set of of rules and regulations and SaaS platforms that uh, measure and monitor carbon and are able to account for it, and so companies like you can abate it. I want to pivot back to a comment that I made and kind of want an answer. Are we in the hype stage? I mean, we see asset valuations that are pretty pretty awesome for anybody that seems to be involved in, in carbon abatement. And, and Graham mentioned to me, he's like, you know, are we at the, the stage in the cycle where it was oil sands, you know, circa 2000 and call it 2004 and, you know, unconventional resources or unconventional gas and oil in a similar time period where like everybody thought everything would work and assets were being inflated. Or are we at the stage in, you know, resource development would have been the oil sands in the seventies and, and, uh, the eighties, uh, and maybe the, you know, unconventional resources in the early 1980s when governments needed to invest and people were very skeptical that you could ever produce tight gas or tight oil or oil sands. And, and so there was still abundant opportunity to capture, you know, grab, you know, get land. And so where are we at with the phase of this cycle? And if I could maybe add on to that, uh, not as lengthy as what Dave just went through, but uh, also like where, where, where do you just see the industry going? Like, where do you think this is going to play out? Okay, you know, lot, lots of great questions. Um, you know, where are we at? That's a good question. There's no question. There's a there's a bunch of excitement about CCS in in Western Canada. I think, I think that you know the opportunity for Alberta to you know lead the decarbonization of a large swaths of of industry to really put us at the front pillar of the nation and internationally as a, um, a region that is applying CCS and uh, decarbonizing their industry base. I, I think it's a significant opportunity and I think it's real. Um, you know, from our perspective, I, you know, we've just kind of got our head down. We're trying to actually, uh, you know, prepare to operate and, and get the job done. Um, but I think, 
uh, absolutely. There's, there's, we, we always run the risk when we get into something new and exciting that, uh, you know, people, you know, uh, you know, run wild with valuations and whatnot. Um, you know, there's, there's not a lot of publicly traded companies, uh, doing the types of things that we do in Canada yet. I, I'm sure that will be some at some point in time. Um, but I, I, I think that, you know, this is, this is, this is important work. It's going to take a lot of professional concentration and focus to do it right. Um, do we run the risk of, of being overinflated, creating expectations that uh, we can't live up to? Possibly. Um, but I think that, you know, this, this, this industry is, is going to take a while to get going. The government's going to release some um, uh, tracks land now. They've been very uh, vocal about creating uh, carbon sequestration hubs. I think there's only going to be three or four potentially that come out of this process. There could be more. I would be surprised if there were. Um, and I think the government's going to take their time to make sure that how we're doing this is, is correct and we're doing it right. And so it's probably not going to happen as fast as people want. I mean, these projects, um, you know, if we start in March of uh, 2022, you know, you're still three years out uh, before carbon goes in the ground because we have to think about all of the permitting, the pipelining, uh, thinking about capture, all the work they have to do in the front end engineering to make sure that, uh, you know, these processes work. You have to go and drill some wells to delineate, do a bunch of testing. So, it's going to take a while, and I think you know people would love to see solutions in the short term, but um, they'll probably be disappointed with that. But ultimately, I believe in the process. I think it's real, and I and I think it's really important for Alberta as well. So I guess we'll we'll know we'll know where we're at with where that capital comes from. If all that capital comes from uh, startups like the cannabis industry, that ultimately went boom, then bust, then we'll know we're in the hype phase. But if the capital to build these out comes from, you know, larger PEs, industrial emitters, then maybe we're not there yet. Um, we, we, we don't have the, don't, don't yet have the feel of a junior oil and gas boom or a cannabis boom um, and overinflated markets yet because we don't have that pipeline of public IPOs. So. Yeah. You know, like when you think about the, the costs of this industrial practice that we're, we're getting into these, you know, these are billions dollar projects. These, you know, we're going to be spending billions of dollars in Alberta to, to sequester. I mean, you've, you saw the, the Dow announcement uh, yesterday. I mean, that was a billion dollar plus type of a project. And so, you know, we, we are going to need institutional money. There's no question. And, um, and we do know of institutional in investors that are interested in these processes. There's no question. Um, I think we've also seen some differentiation between in institutional investors that are interested in BECs or direct air capture uh, more than uh, supporting other industries uh, that may be more related to hydrocarbon um, uh, type activities. But, you know, the hydrocarbon activities are, are the ones where we've got the largest emissions, where we can make some of the biggest impact. And so, you know, it's really important that, that um, all of our industries benefit from this. So, you know, we'll see where the dollars come from, but, uh, you know, we, we, we definitely know of institutional capital that's uh, very interested in these projects. And I think that's great to finally bring back international and institutional capital to Alberta, which has really been missing for a number of years in the oil and gas space. Yeah, and it's, um, it's a theme that we, we see when we, and here when we talk to our clients, you know, we have um, 
many, many institutions and, you know, their desire to find investment opportunities that are aligned uh, with decarbonization, a low carbon future is palpable. Um, and so it will be interesting to see how those investments are, are made and certainly, you know, what kind of data and analytics and uh, MMVs or, or, you know, certifications are required for them to actually unlock that capital, right? To, to bring it into, um, bring it into the se sector. Um, and so it's, it's, it, yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's first time that you can really, and like we talk and we're talking a lot about Alberta here, right? Like, but, but you can say this about the oil and gas sector almost writ large, right? Like it, it, it's had a bad couple of years and um, really being able to get investors back into the energy space because they recognize that uh, hydrocarbons will be around for a long time. Um, and so we need to figure out how to do that in a low carbon and a very well-managed way is important, right? I assume you're in the same boat of hydrocarbons are here for some time, right? We're not getting rid of those right away. The energy transition is going to take a long time. And I know we, we all would love to transition to a, to a low carbon future, uh, us included. And, uh, you know, we're playing the role. We have in Alberta and, and I think throughout, you know, the Western world developed an energy process that took us a century to develop. And to transition out of that is going to take quite some time. And there are future energies that are coming, which are very exciting. Um, but in the meantime, we've, we've got a, a relatively rapid process that we can use that allows us to continue to use in our industrial assets for their full life and continue to, to enjoy the benefits of those industrial assets, reliable, uh, safe processes to, to run our economies. Uh, and carbon sequestration plays, a, I think, a really important role to to decarbonize those assets until, you know, a future time when we've got, you know, things like fusion that are more commonplace. We're going to need all of the different sources of energy to achieve our, our low carbon economy that we all aspire to. And I think carbon sequestration plays a really important role. And uh, I, I'm really excited uh, uh, for uh, Alberta's future in this position. And I think that, uh, you know, that it's going to provide a lot of opportunity for people that have been displaced from the energy sector. And, uh, you know, I really, um, you know, I'm, 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 you know, very thankful to be uh, participating in it. Um, I'm going to pass it over to my host, Morgan Kwan, and give Morgan the last question. And then Patrick, awesome. yourself, the last words. And But for me, I uh, wanted to say, you know, obviously, thank you. Uh, and then thank you, Morgan, for having me as a co-host. It's uh, this is the most fun I have in any given day is 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 being on the pod. I can tell. Happy to have you. Um, so yeah, I'd like to finish off uh, last question without pushing you too far into dangerous crystal ball territory, but just curious to get your thoughts, Patrick, on you know what sort of realistic volumes you think Canada can achieve for sequestration and by what dates, like pie in the sky type thinking? Yeah, that's that is crystal ball territory. Um, uh, you know, I I I think that in the short term, 
um, you know, this 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 process that the Alberta government has started is significant. It, it is going to start a bunch of activity. That activity is going to uh, generate learnings. Those learnings are going to generate further efficiencies and further efficiencies is just going to drive more activity. So we're, we're at the very early stages, which will be slower than most people would like. It'll be methodical, but hopefully it paves the way to to a much broader industry, much the way that Shell Quest has. I think we're, we all benefit from that information. And so now we're, we're stepping out into, into that new time period. Um, I, I'd like to think that when I think out, you know, to 2030 to 2035, uh, that carbon sequestration costs have come down, uh, infrastructure to allow emitters to participate in carbon sequestration is more commonplace across the nation. So I'm not just talking about Alberta or BC, but we think about Ontario and some of these other large sources of emissions. And I think that, uh, you know, you know, one day that we get to a place where we've got uh, that it's relatively common to to integrate carbon sequestration into industrial practices. You know, in the short term, I, I think that the the highest profile area uh, within this uh, current round of our request for uh, proposals from the Alberta government is is no question is going to be the industrial heartland in and around uh, the Edmonton area, and I think. Um, you know, there's there's probably proponents there that are going to be looking for the scale of five million to ten million uh, tons per year of type projects. And so, when you add that up, it, you know, it's very possible that coming out of this prospect or this 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 round of um, requests for proposals, that we may have up to uh, 20 million tons per year of, of projects on our hands. And, and that would be a really exciting, it'd be very ambitious. It, it's, it's huge. It's, it's bigger than, um, really anything that's been done, uh, uh globally, but it, it's possible. And we have all the resources, um, in terms of, um, you know, the people, uh, processes, and we have, uh, like I said, the fabrication, and a regulatory body that's uh, prepared to deal with this, I think, in a very effective and efficient way. So um, when I rub the crystal ball, that's that's how I kind of see Alberta winding out. And, and as I said before, I'm very excited to be participating in it. And I think it's a great it's a great opportunity for Alberta to to really create some national leadership in, in decarbonization plans. Awesome. Dave, and I, I know you had one more question come to mind. Do you want me to ask it or? <laughs> you, I think the question that came up about if you need a subsidy for low cost emissions for carbon to. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the, the question comes around is, is this commercial today or is it is it rely on a government subsidy and or is there aspects like you could sign deals at current cost of carbon like it it's it, it is locked and loaded commercially today, or does it depend on some future super high carbon price and, and a bunch of subsidies? Yeah, that's, you know, that's another um, million dollar question. A 30 minute conversation. <laughs> it could be, it could be, um, you, know, you know, there's no question that, you know, at $40 a ton, that makes it difficult for a lot of projects to go ahead today. You know, the, the projects that, 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 that we've, um, you know, we've done some analysis on. Uh, I think that you need upwards of uh, seventy to one hundred dollars a ton, without without any further um, uh, incentives from the government. 
Um, the government is currently considering uh, an investment tax credit. And uh, so that's with the government of Canada right now. Uh, they had a call out to all industry proponents for uh, asking for suggestions as to how that might be um, developed. And uh, we participated in, in uh, supplying some comments to that. Um, there's no question that the gap between the, the price of, of carbon today and uh, not having an ITC will really limit the velocity of activity. And so until that carbon price gets higher, uh, the, the role of, of uh, subsidies or investment tax credits is really going to, uh, I think, be necessary to increase the velocity, which increases the learnings, which then increases the efficiencies and so forth. And it's sort of that virtuous circle. The United States has the 45Q and uh, and you can see that there's quite a bit of activity. I know that uh, on the last podcast, uh, there was a lot of discussion about that. And so, um, you know, for Canada to really get involved and march toward our 2030 and 2050 uh, carbon reduction ambitions, yeah, I think, you know, from, from our perspective, for investment to come in and, and generate a reasonable return, uh, that um, having an investment tax credit in, in the short term is going to be important. And I think, you know, the other the other thing that that's debatable is, you know, how does that tax credit and, and carbon tax and support uh, vary between the different types of projects? So uh, some some projects are going to benefit by having uh, superior geology. So the cost of injection is going to be low. The number of wells are going to be less. And therefore, the 3D seismic footprint is going to be less. There's all these benefits. Um, you may have high concentration, uh, high pressure uh, emissions, and therefore your capture costs are going to be less. And so, you know, we're going to have projects that are going to be economic um, much earlier than some other projects. And yet, you know, the public good of taking carbon and removing carbon from the atmosphere um, is is going to uh, um, occur unevenly amongst all these different projects that could exist out there. So there's a whole debate about how you know how the ITC might get applied, um, but without without a doubt, uh, in the short term, the ITC is going to be important to attract capital from the United States or internationally into Canada to facilitate some of these projects. Awesome, thanks. I feel like we could this conversation could keep going for a long time. So maybe we'll leave it there. Um, it was a pleasure talking with you, Patrick, and, and hearing your thoughts on CCS in respects to Alberta and Canada and beyond. And uh, we look forward to seeing what Carbon Alpha uh, gets up to in the short term here. So thank you very much. Thanks very much for having me. I really appreciated the chance to come and speak with both of you today. And this podcast was recorded on October 7th, 2021. Inveris Intelligence Research Incorporated provides leading energy industry research and is a subsidiary of Inveris, the largest SaaS company in the world solely dedicated to the energy market. Therefore, any company mentioned in this podcast may be a subscriber or client of Inveris Intelligence Research, Inveris, or their affiliates. However, any views expressed in this podcast accurately reflect the speaker's personal views about any subject securities referenced. The information contained in this recording is provided for information purposes only and is not to be used or considered as investment advice or recommendation or offer to buy, hold, or sell any securities or other financial instruments. Please visit www.embarrass.com disclosures for additional information.